Hello and welcome to episode two of the Full Brexit Election Podcast. Um, Full Brexit is a network of scholars, academics and activists devoted to seizing the opportunities for popular sovereignty and democratic renewal in Brexit. So today it's me, George Hall, and Lee Jones. Hi Lee, how's it going? Hi George, going okay? <laughs> great, uh, great enthusiasm, great energy. <laughs> um, oh, it's been a long campaign. It has. So <clears throat> this is episode number two. On the first episode we had a look at, uh, ele- at Labour and Labour's manifesto and a bit of the um, context around the election. So today um, on uh, on the programme we've got the Tories, we've got the Brexit Party, we've got a bit of a review of some of the events of the election. Um, So today is Saturday the 7th of December, ahead of Thursday's election and and, uh, first episode recorded on the 23rd, so we can see what, if anything has happened in the intervening time. Um, But yeah, so maybe to to get started straight away with with the Conservatives. So the um, YouGov poll gave them a 64 percent chance of, of majority with 34 percent chance for hung parliament and four percent labor majority so it seems like the tories are on course to uh to win in uh some way this election um yeah lee what what strikes you about the way that the tories have been um campaigning or where their support seems to be coming from it's interesting there was a, a conference that held by the, um, the UK in a changing Europe um, earlier this week and people from the British election um, survey were presenting data there which showed you where the different parties were getting their votes from, losing their votes from, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. The big message I guess of the polls is the success of the Conservatives in this election is not because there's some big surge in enthusiasm for Boris Johnson mm-hmm. or that they're offering some kind of amazing vision for the future that everybody wants to sign up for. Mm-hmm. It's largely because they're just holding on to their voter base that they um, consolidated in 2017, whereas Labour's vote is fragmented. Um, and even though Labour's reconsolidating it a little bit, which is they're squeezing the Lib Dems, basically, um, the Tories have been much more successful in squeezing the Brexit party. Mm-hmm. So they've held the Tory vote, they've got back most of the Brexit party vote, and they've drawn in some voters who perhaps wouldn't have voted or, or previously didn't know who they would support, floating voters. Mm-hmm. They're not really pulling in support from Labour or Liberal Democrats, um, which is interesting because that's one of the, the early narratives was the idea that you know Labour heartlands would flip Tory, which implied that... Mm. Labour voters might flip to the Tories and it seems actually tribal loyalties and just sheer hatred of the Conservatives which yeah. runs very deep in, in working class communities in Wales and the North and Midlands is enough to prevent that happening but fundamentally the Labour vote is, is still largely fragmented the Remain side of the argument is fragmented yeah. and the Leave side is consolidated around the Tories so they'll win not because of any great surge um, or popular enthusiasm for the Tory manifesto which is you know, very uninspiring stuff, really, um, but largely because you know they're they're promising to honour the Brexit vote, um, and the Conservatives, to a large extent, have turned themselves into the Brexit Party. So, I guess the, um, the get Brexit done. This this um, as Phil Cunliffe's article on the full Brexit mm-hmm. explains, depoliticising um, slogan 
what what would this what, what does this mean if if the Tories are to form are to form a government if they do do win a majority does it mean that there's a there's a massive groundswell of support for their project or is it essentially a um, that, that that just enough people can be bothered to to go out and vote for for the Tories I think that get Brexit done slogan it it is speaking to the people that are really committed to mm. it. perhaps you know the ones that were angered enough by the drift towards Remain um, to, to defect the Brexit party. It appeals to them, mm. but it also appeals to this sense of kind of exhaustion with the whole Brexit process and a desire that the country does move forward, mm. um, you know, to get rid of the dithering delay and to, to move the country on. Um, I think a lot of people do feel that way um, on both sides of the argument, to be honest. Um, but it speaks to the way in which the sort of democratic energy of the referendum result has been sapped yeah. over the last three and a half years that people are just, uh, most people, including me, are, you know, quite sick and tired of the whole thing and the, and the potential for sort of channeling that desire for a different order, for a different way of doing things, uh, I think is, is, has dissipated, sort of hollowed out. And that's what the Tories are sort of are promising: is we'll we'll just draw a line under it, and we'll yeah. get we'll move on and do other things. Well, of course, <clears throat> Labour are the opposite side of the argument. We will talk about any we'll draw a line under it by talking about anything mm. other than Brexit. But I mean, there's a there's a question here: Has the left missed this opportunity? Then this democratic uh, moment that didn't become a democratic movement mm. is it? Um, has that window of opportunity finally finally shut? Yeah, I mean, I think it was a narrow window of opportunity anyway, because, you know, I think the left has completely bungled Brexit, but in a way pre-bungled Brexit, because mm. it was on the wrong side of the argument before the referendum was even called. And so it would have been, you know, 180 degree tailspin mm. um, to sort of say, oh, well, OK, you know, we we lost the argument, but we accept the result. Um, and this is a left-wing vision for a, for a post-Brexit Britain. Mm. That's obviously what we would have wanted to see uh, and what we've been calling for the left to do. Um, and it certainly hasn't made any steps really in that direction at all. Even the manifesto that we discussed in the last episode yeah. does not say, you know, these are the things that we can do outside of the European Union. <clears throat> it's still not even trying to say, you know, there are actually some benefits to leaving. Mm. Um, it, it's, it's never seized the opportunity, it's never come close. Um, and that is a massive missed opportunity, I think. It's a historical error. Yeah. Yeah, I think we can, we can definitely reflect on this after the election and, and what, it, what it means for the left in the coming years. But to focus, I think, on the, who's supporting the Tories, there have been some quite striking analyses in terms of, of class and age. Mm. The um, <clears throat> perhaps particularly, particularly class. I mean, this is we talked about this a little in the in the last um, in the last episode. Um, but to the fact that so forty two percent of C two D E voters plan on voting Tory and only thirty four percent Labour. Why have the Tories been able to draw working class support? I guess this is a, this is a question that's important for the left to try to address yeah it's a major process of realignment that's been going on for a long time I think we said this before mm. it's not a sudden shift 
although again looking back at some of the data presented at that conference that I mentioned there has been a big shift in the class composition of conservative support between June and November of this year mm. um, so initially you know the, there was something like 36 37 percent middle class and about 32 percent working class now it's about 30 percent middle class and uh, about 38 percent um, working class according to these charts um, and that is largely because they've clawed back support from the Brexit party Yeah. so <clears throat> it doesn't look like there's many um, people who voted for Labour in the last election that are shifting over to the Conservatives so it's the entry of working class voters is not happening that way, it's happened in two stages, one is via UKIP, so obviously in 2017 the UKIP vote completely collapsed some of it went to the Labour Party, mm -hmm. some of it went to the Conservatives, and a lot of UKIP voters. Um, I mean, some of them are disillusioned Tory voters, but quite a lot of them actually, especially in the North Wales, they're former Labour supporters who have become feel, feel betrayed by the Labour Party, shifted over to UKIP. UKIP then becomes the yeah. gateway to yeah, the Conservatives, yeah. and likewise with the Brexit Party, some people I think have moved through the Brexit Party um, from the working classes into the Conservatives because they see that voting Conservative is the way that to actually implement Brexit. Um, so that seems to be the way they've, they've picked it up. And of course the, the Tories have always had some working class supporters anyway. Um, it's a big pitch in the 80s for Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. But for now, you know, the situation of um, a, a 10 point lead for the Conservatives among the C2DE voters. I mean, you yeah. can critique how this classification system works, you know, yeah. B, C, C1, it's a very, C2. It's a very marketing approach. And yeah, it's it, it comes from market research. Yeah. And, and, and lots of people who are in the A, B category actually self-define as working class. So it's it's not an unproblematic measure, but all the same, um, it is not good for the Labour Party, which exists to represent the working poor, uh, that more working poor people... Um, Vote, they're planning to vote for the Conservatives, then are planning to vote Labour. That's just a—it's a disaster for the Labour Party. I think the the question is really how, why this um, transition has has occurred, or it seems to be occurring. And you can go into the some of the um, the history around, I guess, New Labour's deliberate positioning away from an appeal to to working class identity or working class interests. But I think more more recently, it does <laughs> almost seem that. Um, Brexit Party voters or UKIP voters don't have a particularly easy reception from the Labour Party and Labour Party supporters, mm. um, particularly or one one fraction. So I don't know if it really is the Tories appealing or being particularly um, <clears throat> particularly clever in their in their pitch, mm. um, but rather Labour sort of almost turning their noses up and saying, mm. "Well, you know, as part of our approach to Brexit, we have defined anybody who's." Who might have ha have a history with uh, UKIP or history with the Brexit Party as a far right fascist? We don't want their support. We don't want their association. I mean, and that of course would be much more disastrous because that is a that is a, a longer term push factor potentially rather than a shorter term pull factor from the Tories. Yeah, I think there's very little in terms of pull factor. I think it's a sense that the Tories will honour our vote yeah. and the Labour Party won't, and that's the pull. It's not that working class people. Are bamboozled by Boris Johnson, and they think 
oh, he's like one of us, you know, yeah. a bit of a lad. People don't think that. I think they understand what the Tories stand for. Um, and a lot of them are doing are temporarily lending their vote to the Conservatives to do a job. Yeah. Um, and that reflects, you know, the massive rise in voter volatility since the um, since the 1980s, that people will um, flip as they flip to yeah. the Brexit party. They flip back. You know, they want the political system to honour their vote and they will vote for whoever is going to do that. Yeah. I mean, and I think you're absolutely right about the Labour Party's attitude to these to these um um, to these fellow citizens has been absolutely despicable um, I mean that article that uh, Owen Jones published in The Guardian with two weeks left to run on the campaign clock suddenly saying oh you know we actually need leave voters so can we please start talking to them for the last two weeks of the campaign and trying to, and trying to reassure them I mean just incredible level of um, idiocy political cretinism you know to position yourself as being this great um, spokesman now for the working class because you're, you're positioning yourself against the Romaniacs in the yeah. in the middle classes and being bold and facing them down because you dare to say that we actually need leave voters after basically calling leave voters racist gammon um, far right years, and then with two weeks to go you say oh actually do you know what? If we get if we save fifty two percent of the population, we actually think you're scum. Yeah. Uh, maybe we can't ever really form a government. Yeah. Without those people, it's just incredible. And I think that's you know a lot of people just think how could you possibly vote for a Labour Party that that treats me and my family, and yeah. my community like this? Yeah, I think it's um it's hardly surprising that there's a lot of there's a lot of anger and cynicism around um, around this election um, and actually we I think we can go on to talk about how <clears throat> I think how some of the events that have, have patterned this election campaign or, or non-events um, do show that it hasn't been a very inspiring mm. election it hasn't been able to counter the, the still the residual anger and and um, yeah political cynicism um, which is obviously created by <coughs> labor and some of its um, spokespeople in the, in the media having this sort of patronising attitude um, but before we move on to that just I guess to cover the, the Brexit party mm. a little bit because it's it's become clearer that they're the narrative at the beginning of the election Brexit and we touched on this a bit last time <clears throat> that the Brexit party will split the leave vote this is Labour's route to power this hasn't this ha hasn't happened at all so we had three um, Brexit party MEPs Resigning, um, were you were you shocked, uh, staggered by this by this news? Not really, knowing the people involved, um, mm. they are basically Tories. Um, you know, it's it represents the temporary alliance that that the Brexit Party was. It was a it was an alliance of convenience between people who could see that. Um, that Brexit was in risk of not being implemented, and mm. you know, hurriedly came together in the spring to contest the European elections. Mm. Um, and people there are evaluating the Brexit Party on the basis of what it's doing. Um, its primary goal is to get is to get Brexit done. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if if that's what Johnson's promising, then you know you should you should lend it uh, your support. That's that's their view. It's the view of a lot of Brexit Party voters. I mean, now they're polling on two three percent. 
Yeah. They've just completely um, hollowed out. The, you know, the big, the, the only sort of really big event <coughs> of this election campaign was, was Farage standing down his candidates in Tory held seats. Yeah. <clears throat> After saying he wouldn't do that, there'd be no pact. Um, but, you know, the, there's that conflict about what the Brexit party is actually for. If it's yeah. just about making sure the referendum result is honoured, then you can see this. You can see the purpose of sort of flocking to it, you know, um, holding the Tories' feet to the fire, and then withdrawing. If you think that the purpose of this was to start a new political movement and what they call in their um, contract, not manifesto, yeah. we've come to that, um, a political revolution, <coughs> then you have to stick with it because um, and actually do more, perhaps, to damage the Tories. You yeah. know, not to support them, to damage Labour Party and the Tories, um, in order to, um, you know, make real lasting change. And I think clearly the different forces inside the Brexit Party that have different ideas about what this is actually for. Yeah. Um, and the people in the first camp are now peeling away, and that's going to leave the people that saw this vi as a vehicle for transforming British politics. I think badly exposed. Yeah, I think it. It, it seems that that is that. Um <clears throat> at least the voters definitely saw it as a temporary, you know, one or two shot um, vehicle, um, and I think to that extent it could you could argue that it's been relatively successful because it, it, there was a a point at which it, it it was able to exercise quite a lot of leverage over the Tories, and I In think the same way that UKIP did. Yeah, you know, it's one of the most successful political parties ever, despite the fact that it it, it has. You know, almost no representation in Parliament. Yeah, precisely because of the leverage it, it, it exercised over the Tories. I mean, I, th I do think just to go back to your point about voters and how they saw it, I do think there's a deeply felt and still unmet need for political renewal and transformation mm. in this country. Um, but I think people also can see what damage it would do if the referendum was uh, was overturned. Yeah. Um, and they can see that the only way, the only path, and we talked about this last time, it's a choice between a conservative majority which implements the Brexit decision mm. or a hung parliament dominated by Remain parties, a second referendum which will be rigged to remain inside the European Union, or at the very best, a Brexit in name only. The voters can see that that's the choice. It's not just that they're buying the line spun by Boris Johnson you know, that that basically is the choice and so I think it's not that people think it's just a temporary thing and then they'll go back to voting Conservative there will still be this unmet need for, for change yeah so I guess the the question still remains whether that <clears throat> whether it will be a sort of a mollifying course course of action that if we do have this Tory um, Brexit and there's an attempt to I guess get Brexit done go back to normal politics or whatever exactly that means mm. um, and whether in fact the how, how sympathetic would you be to the argument that I have heard that actually the best thing to happen in one way would be for Labour to be <clears throat> in, a, in a, a, a majority seems unlikely but in a in a hung parliament governing as a minority government and then enacting the second referendum and really really revealing that it does not represent the working class and it does not represent um, democracy and that is a sort of moving towards um, a crisis which represents the real weakness of the left and the real lack of representation 
It, I mean, we, we hear these kind of let's have a crisis arguments <laughs> quite often, but how sympathetic are you? Haven't we had one? I mean, the last three years have been a massive crisis, haven't they? Yeah. I mean, how much more do we need to expose the fact that um, the Labour Party is alienated from the working class and is not committed to democracy uh, and the empowerment of the working class? I mean, that, that seems fairly clear to me. Um, and I think a lot of people, which is why they've sort of drifted away from the Labour Party, and even with all the offers of the manifesto, um, they're not going back to it. Mm. Um, it, it seems uh, one of the great questions, I think, of, of British politics is, is why um, people on the far left in particular don't desert the Labour Party. Mm. Um, they, they won't ever learn that lesson, it seems to me. Um, you know, to, to break from it, found something else, um, and basically abandon it to the Blairites that actually control the party. Mm. Um, uh, they won't do that. Uh, there won't ever be, you know, another crisis. Just just one more crisis, and they'll do that. You know, we've um, it, this just hasn't happened, and it, and it's one of the big questions where we have to, to have to confront is why, um, and what would make that change. Mm. Um, because it's see, it's clear that the Labour Party cannot, I think, be used for socialist transformation of this country. Um, because even though you've got a socialist at the top and a, a socialist-sounding manifesto like we talked about last time, yeah. if it's not wedded to the democratic instinct of mm. empowering working-class people, um, you won't get that. Yeah. What you actually get is water is a kind of souped-up, um, souped-up Blairism. Yeah. like in terms of public spending and that's the best you can get a left yeah a left liberal position i mean the it i think it is important to repeat our point again and then because it's it's the defining kind of situation of of, of the british left like that mm. <clears throat> that kind of the way that the labor party still continues to captivate despite manifestly not being socialist vehicle but and, and it's interesting it it it, it does and it is um, captivating young um, left-wing activists. Yeah. This is one of the interesting things, talking to friends of mine that are very active in the Labour Party and Momentum and have been involved in the election mm. campaign designing the, the pitch and all the rest of it, is masses of Momentum activists or just people just flocking to, to canvas for Labour. Yeah. You know, um, Ian Duncan Smith's constituency where I used to, to live um, just on the Essex borders, a thousand activists turned up one weekend to campaign yeah. for the for the local Labour candidate. And it's a very good chance that he will lose his seat. And yeah. a, so he, you know, Corbyn continues to inspire that a cadre of 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 people, um, some of whom, you know, came round to the to the so called Lexit position um, after the referendum, um, and now they're being used to, to to campaign for a government that, of course, would in effect you know neutralize the the brexit referendum but yeah it has if it's not inspired the public it yeah ha it has inspired activists definitely and that's interesting and you yeah and you you hear stories of of um this mass mobilization which in the 2017 um election i have to you know have to confess i was out there door knocking um, and I and you know I think there is a for the Labour Party, and that there is a <clears throat> there is an energy, and that mobilisation is an interesting 
um, I guess factor of the British Labour Party putting it into the context of other European Social Democratic mm. parties because it does seem to have have um, bucked the trend. Yeah, but it does suggest also that that the Labour Party continues to absorb that sort of youthful, radical energy that could go into the creation of something else, uh, and that I think is is a political function of a Labour Party actually mm. is to draw in these um, young radicals um, and essentially to tame them. Yeah, I mean it's difficult to to argue against that. But <laughs> moving uh, moving on, I guess from from Labour who probably doesn't deserve the um, critical analysis that we've we've just been been giving onto onto the Brexit party. Mm. So we talked about Le- Labour manifesto last time. So the Brexit party don't have a um, manifesto. They have a um, they've learned from Berlusconi. They have a they have a contract mm. with the people, don't they? So yeah, it really reinforces that um, uh, the 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 company model, right? The fact that it's yeah. not a political party. It's registered as a company. It has. Yeah. The contract is between the leader and the chairman who have signed it, and you are invited to sign this contract. You can sign it with a web form, you can print a PDF of it and sign it. I don't know if you've had a leaflet through your letterbox, I got one yesterday, you know, you can sign the leaflets. Um, it, it reinforces that kind of company CEO way of doing things. And it's meant to be a different, you know, mm. manifestos are basically a load of lies and vague promises, allegedly. Um, thanks to our political class. Uh, so a contract is something different, you know, targeted pledges, yep. we can deliver on, that kind of thing. Presumably, I mean, <clears throat> it's, it, is, it is quite striking how, just talking about the, the mobilisation of Labour, particularly young Labour activists, signing a contract is a very individualised way to have a relationship with a political party, you're not out as part of a group of people. No, it's not a relationship with the party, it's a relationship yeah, to well, the precisely. two top leaders. Yeah, right. and that's the classic populism. <clears throat> you know, we bypass any representative structures. We have no internal democracy. Yep. You cannot participate in the life of the party. You turn up to rallies and you hear us speak, and you sign our contract as an individual. That is that is the classic model of populist mobilization. Yeah, sold also as disintermediation. So you're not. You're, they're, they're not all of these party bureaucrats. I'm, I'm air quoting there, which doesn't work particularly well on a podcast. But there's yeah, there's none of these people who are like making decisions on in within the party it's just you and the leader mm. and you you know you have that that closer um relationship that's the idea but of course decisions are still being made within the party we just of don't course. know how and you as an individual brexit party supporter have no influence or control over that whatsoever so when farage stood down his candidates some of the candidates were pretty pissed off there was nothing they could do mm. um, nobody could do anything it was farage's decision and nobody could you know the only thing you can do is leave um, th- that's your choice. So, and suddenly somebody has filtered. I mean, the policy making process is really be fascinating for political scientists to actually study. As I understand it, they sent out a request for people to basically email in their ideas to an email inbox. And about last time I heard, there was about thirty thousand emails have been received from the public, which have been boiled down to about sixteen policy commitments. So, so somebody has chosen those and yeah. not others. So choices are being made. Yeah. It's not like there isn't some party bureaucrat somewhere making these decisions. Um, there is, but it's just behind closed doors, in secret, with no involvement of any party members or the general public. And no democratic structures. Absolutely. So in terms of these policy, um, the, the, the terms of the contract, mm-hmm. the, 
Um, it's quite a, quite a striking convergence here, right? This is the in terms of the content. Mm. I guess what what can we what can we say? So I mean, there's, there's political stuff in there, and some of this is all um, well and good. Uh, you know, they commit to a clean break Brexit voting reform. I mean, they're a bit vague on some of these things. You know, want a more representative voting system. Not quite clear whether that means PR or something mm. else. Abolish the Lords. Um, good. Reform Supreme Court. Um, there's some kind of weird. Well, not weird. It's understandable, but culture wars stuff about making civil servants swear an oath of p political neutrality, phasing out the BBC license fee, making universities uphold free speech. There's a sort of you know counter attack on the forces that have been mm. most hostile to um, to Brexit, to Brexit voters. Yeah. Um, you know, to the whole Leave side of the argument. Um, Allowing referenda if there's five million signatures, that kind of thing. So, um, I think that's that that stuff. It it, do, it does show that their understanding of what Brexit is 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 quite shallow. That it's been basically a, a culture war after the event, and then I mean it's very true that there's been, as we were talking about earlier, pretty incessant denigration of of Leave voters, mm. and and partly through the. The supposedly neutral cultural institutions mm. that we have, but I think in terms of a real democratic renewal and really committing to um, to a left a left case for sovereignty, a left case for for kind of democratic uh, economic democracy, it's not really there, is it? No, it's not. I mean, it's 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 fairly thin. I mean, I don't I don't disagree with this with the political side of things. I think one of the important functions a Brexit party could have played. Um, would be to sort of lob a grenade into the um, ossified political structures and and make some, you know, compel some changes to things like the voting system, mm. um, abolishing the House of Lords, reforming the Supreme Court. These are all, you know, things that actually should be done regardless of who's in power to try to clear away um, some of the the wreckage of of the post-war political settlement that is sort of sitting around you know, zombified mm. um, and, to, and to create some space for new parties not necessarily the Brexit party itself you know um, but it could serve that function mm. of disrupting the political system and creating space for, for some alternative to flourish um, so I mean you know it's good that it's, it's committed to, to those things um, but they are procedural mm. they're, not sub they're not substantive yeah, um, there isn't a political project there itself. It's an attack on the existing political structures and certain political institutions that are, you know, bastions of remain. Mm. So it's a negative attack. Um, it's it's not a vision for the democratic transformation of society. Yeah, it's not there. Um, and I don't think the Brexit Party could ever come up with anything like that. It that would have to be a left project, actually. Um, but so on the political side, I mean, the, it's all, it's all fine. It's a little, it's a little bit vague and it's very procedural and, and lacking on content. There's more, much more content on the economic uh, side, and I think what's interesting here is this. Um, you know, you can read it in two main ways. One is that it's this kind of weird uh, amalgam of sort of Thatcherite commitment to tax cuts 
deregulation, free trade, mm-hmm. small businesses fetishized in particular, um, with uh, much more of a commitment to state intervention in the economy. Um, so they commit to fifty billion pounds worth of road and rail projects, two point five billion for coastal communities, um, uh, defence of public services. You know, absolute commitment to no privatisation in the mm. NHS and actually rolling back Labour's um, privatisation of the NHS. So you've got those two things going together, um, which I think is a, is an unstable amalgam that represents the two contradictory forces inside the party itself um, mm. but I think more to the point it it reflects I think the new um, I don't know I hate the term centre ground if you like but there's a new sort of consensus I think emerging in British politics that simply you know winding back the state um, austerity uh, introduce markets and you know, leave it to markets to govern things like higher education or health or something like that. That I think is no longer really supported by um, any political party apart from Liberal Democrats. They're the sort of last defenders of austerity. Yeah. Um, all of the parties have moved towards state intervention in the economy. Now, obviously, to differing degrees, and you can say, oh, you know, obviously, Labour's plans to intervene in the economy are much more radical and transformative than yeah. the Conservatives um, and the Brexit Party's plans are I think probably more interventionist than the Conservatives as well but it's interesting that that's the direction of travel and I think that that is a result of Brexit you know so when people say uh, what's the point Brexit hasn't really changed anything etc etc it actually has I think it is reshaping the political debate in this country um, and it has things are moving back towards greater state mm. intervention, that kind of social democratic form. The idea that some people are saying that the Tories are now the party of social democracy takes the argument a bit too far. Mm. But it's certainly true that if the Tories are to have any hope of holding the working class support that they've picked up from UKIP and the Brexit Party, um, it will have to deliver on its commitments to make the state uh, work for ordinary people, to yeah. protect and expand public services, to wind yeah. back austerity, to you know invest mm. in infrastructure. Because if people mm. look at the record in five years' time and say <clears throat> you did, you actually didn't deliver, they will withdraw their support. Yeah, I think it's 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 you know very very well framed, and at this um, decline of Labour Heartlands Mythal reality event that I was at in, in Liverpool last last week which was which was excellent there was a a question on on this this issue I guess of this sort of convergence around more state intervention um, as to whether it's really represents a crisis of of neoliberal hegemony or progressive neoliberalism um, fracturing so this so brexit and, and Trump represent the end of this of this period where <clears throat> you had a combination of, of some quite um, neoliberal redistributive policies um, combined with some quite progressive polit- uh, politics of recognition or basically social social policies and that and that is no longer viable and I think there is something something to this mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. this this previous um, agreement that all we needed was 
with some well you could combine some austerity with some some pseudo radical or some pseudo progressive um, social policies that doesn't really seem to be seem to hold anymore and I wonder to the extent to which it is the political class seeing Brexit as something which needs to be explained and needs to be addressed mm. it's a problem that not the, not the not the vote and the, the change represented by the vote but the reason why people mm. voted that way mm. the causes oh they've you know we have to listen to them now mm -hmm. so we have to give a bit more state intervention mm. just to solve that problem of course there's, there's still no real desire to integrate the people into politics but at least there's a mm. there's a kind of some recognition that all oh, people are angry let's give them a bit more mm. state um, support yeah I think everybody's doing that to some extent the conservatives are doing it mm. You know, if you look at what Boris Johnson did after he became Prime Minister, he basically stole um, the Brexit Party's line <coughs> on many of these things. Mm. Um, started focusing on, on working class issues, um, education, crime, NHS. Mm. Uh, and the Labour Party is basically the same. Um, you know, they think that people need to be protected and protected by the state. So um, this idea of the state as being a protector of society, as, as ensuring our security, um, is is definitely coming back, I think, across the, the political spectrum. And that is not, um, it's not transformative in the same way that genuinely democratising the economy would be, for example, and empowering, empowering workers and empowering communities to take control over their everyday lives. Um, mm. which a, a true kind of radical programme of democratic change would. Um, but it's certainly a, a, a massive improvement over, um, you know, just let people rot. Um, and the idea that everything that the state does is bad and the only way that you can govern society is through the market. Mm. Um, that has just been a, a completely failed, disastrous experiment. People have got the evidence of 30 years to yeah. look at that. You know, progressive neoliberalism worked for a while while there were certain economic conditions that allowed mm. people to basically prosper, at least some people to prosper. Um, you know, the idea of privatised Keynesianism, cheap credit, mm. basically, and, you know, bilking, rising, bilking your house to rising house prices to, to pay for consumption, mm. that kind of thing. But that hasn't worked for 10 years. Um, Austerity put paid to that, so the material basis of it went. Yeah. Um, and the ideological side was always a bit thin anyway. Yeah. It appealed mostly to a quite thin metropolitan um, cast of people. Meritocrats. Yeah. Sort of stripes. What you call professional middle classes um, and and members of various minority groups that you know that, that have been um, have been important um, mm. concessions. Um, during that period but it's not it, it leaves lots of people cold and that's what the political scientists mean when they're saying that um, there's this there's this space uh, for a new party to occupy a position that's more left on the economy and more right on culture mm. and that's that's kind of what they that's kind of what they mean is you know most people are left cold by this social justice warrior stuff um, it, there's a space for, for for somebody to say the state will protect you it'll look after you it will intervene in the economy it'll provide good jobs yeah. it'll provide good services and you know we're not we're not going to push our social justice agenda 
uh, we're going to focus on you know families and you know kind of soft patriotism yeah kind something of like that blue labor sdp yeah and that's ballpark that kind of area and yeah. that's that is really where the conservatives are moving into yeah i think in i think it'll be interesting to see what happens in the when the next election after this one is going to be and whether the some of these um trajectories that we've identified are, uh, are continued but maybe just to sort of to to wrap up a little bit with some of the the events of the election some of the um there hasn't really been um, a labor surge like there was in 2017 or at least at <coughs> time of recording 7th of december there hasn't been it could could be extremely late surge um a lot of people still undecided but yeah what i mean what do you think are the main talking points of this election one of them seems to me to be relationship with the media mm. um brexit party candidate standing down as we talked about earlier but yeah it does seem that there hasn't really been um when when we look back on the 2019 election what what will what what will stand out if if anything i think not very much um i mean you know people will look back on it and see that it was the brexit election because it will be, it, it will decide that question even if it wasn't the only issue we talked about during the campaign and maybe not even the main issue mm. um, because lots of other things were discussed it's been quite diffuse in mm. that in that respect the tories have not managed to make it only about brexit um so it's not been a very exciting um, or interesting campaign at all. I think you're right that the, the media has... So a, a great election to do a podcast on yeah, that. Yeah, but it's, it's important because things are going on, on under the surface, mm. right? It will be decisive in, with respect to Brexit. Um, and there are these realignments going on around the relationship between the economy and the state mm. and between the state and the citizens mm. and between um, uh, poorer citizens and the political parties. And these are these are really big tectonic shifts that if they... We don't know if they'll solidify. And like you say, it'd be interesting to see in five years' time what the, the long-term impact of this will mm. be. Um, but there are... There are shifts slowly, slowly, you know, happening over the last three years that these are an impact of Brexit. Mm. Um, and even if Brexit were to be neutralised through a second referendum, it's not that you could just wind the clock back to 2016 and it would just have the status quo ante. Mm. You know, we don't. That's not possible, um, despite what the Liberal Democrats might, you know, hanker for. Um, things have changed, yeah, and, and um, it will continue to reverberate through the political system. So. I think it's, it's it is worth um, just briefly <clears throat> commenting on the uh, I guess the how uninspired by the two options um, a lot of people mm. feel themselves to be, including such publications as the New Statesman and the Financial Times, papers of or <clears throat> magazines of reactionary li liberalism and finance capital, saying uh, <laughs> the running dogs of capitalism, <laughs> saying um, it's not not liking the the figure, um, the the main remain figure of Jer <coughs> of Jeremy Corbyn, um, and also not being on board with with Brexit, mm. so not seeing not feeling themselves to be represented. In addition to um, the left lead position, clearly not having any any. Um, or not having the, the sort of representation we would we would want it to have, mm. perhaps. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So I guess is this is this um, another another theme 
um, of, of just a lack of a lack of representation for for any positions other than a than a right leave and a and a left remain. Yeah, I think I think that's broadly right. That a lot of people I think feel not represented very well by either party, um, which shows you that the 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 void that we talked about last mm. week, the void between the um, the voters and those who represent them, is still there. Mm. Still, like I said earlier on, there's an unmet need that um, will continue, uh, and I think that will continue to affect the way that the political parties think about their programmes and about their relationship to the citizenry. Mm. Um, which is why I don't think that this shift that we're seeing in terms of class alignments, in terms of rethinking the state, um, is just going to be a flash in the pan because they're going to have to think about how they repair and rebuild that relationship with the citizenry long term. And if they don't, it will leave this void which will continue to be open to populist mobilisation. Yeah. That's a yeah, great, great place to, to leave it. So we've now um, got to see what happens on the, the 12th of December in this simultaneously extremely important and perhaps underwhelming, uh, uninspiring election. Um, but we'll be back um, with a post-election roundup. Um, so yeah, catch you then. Thanks very much for listening.